I'm going to miss something kind of funny. You know our verse today? Romans 10, uh, 12, 10 to 12. It's on my letterman jacket. I just had, I, I was good. Uh, Jess told me I had to bring it. I just kind of forgot. But I'm just going to wear this. This is, you know, I don't need to pose with you guys. Um, when I was in high school, I'm trying to follow the Lord, and I liked Romans 12, 12. And now, so like, and I think this ties into our text. So often we come to God in our infancy, and we're like, I just need help. I need help with this. And God, out of his rich treasures, goes, here you go. Here's a little help on something, right? And then later on, he really opens up all this kind of stuff. It's like when you're back when you're, uh, last week I made a sports analogy, and then we changed it to a Renaissance Fair analogy, but we're back into sports analogy. Back in the day, um, you're playing a sport, and there's just one thing you can't do well, and you want that fixed. You try to get someone to help you fix it, but there's actually a whole sport you don't understand. And so often coaches go, oh, sure, sure, I'll help you out with that. But if you listen, they'll go, okay, now take a seat. Let me unfold the game to you, right? And how all this works together, right? And so God, in a very similar way, often comes to us in our need and provides for us a little bit of help. And then later on, he backs up and goes, let me unfold the game to you, right? And that's where you get really strength and great help. Romans 12, 12, I'm in high school. I feel lonely. I'm like the rejecto king. And that verse about like, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, continuing constant in prayer. That was like my dating verse. It's right there in the pocket of my, of my Letterman jacket. It's just like this, it's like this Letterman jacket hall of shame, you know, right there. So when I saw it come up on our, our memory verse, I'm like, that's funny. I remember that verse. But to God, from God to me back in the day, that was his initial, some of his initial blessings to me as I struggled as a young man. Now I look at it and go, what an idiot. Like, just don't date till you're ready to get married, right? That's what I tell my kids now. But I, I, I can see that in hindsight. Back then, I was just, I, I didn't want that. And, and I was frustrated and hurt. And I'm reading God's word, and God's word brought to me hope and promise. And it wasn't hope and promise that I would date, but it's hope and promise to stay at his feet, right? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, continue constant in prayer. And so the Lord taught me that verse back in the day. In the New King James, that's why I quote it wrong. I'm sorry. We're doing ESV. It's just stuck in there. Uh, but God gave them to me early in the early days and taught me small things and then came to me in time. And, and while I was helped by that little verse back then in Palmdale, California, those passages now are eclipsed by the far greater things he's taught me that actually give me um, immense strength and joy and help and power and us. And so today's passage is that. Today's passage is, um, may at first seem to you like, what would I do with that? If you're just going to come in really quickly for Jesus for a little pick-me-up, it, it has some things there for that. But today's passage is where God sits you down and goes, okay, let me unfold the game to you. Let me give you strength. Let me put meat on your bones. Like, let, me, let me unfold your mind and the power of these, these things. It's Romans chapter 7. Once you've been around Christianity for about 10 years, you'll realize that Romans chapter 7 is one of the most debated, hard-to-understand passages in all of the New Testament. Um, people, really good theologians for years don't see eye to eye on some of the details of this. They all see pretty much eye to eye about the outcome of it, but the pathway through it, because it's a crazy show. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pray for me in a moment here, okay? And I'm going to pray for you. We're going to both need God's help as we go through this passage. But you're going to see this. Paul changes tenses. He's in the past tense. He's in the present tense. He's in the past tense. He's talking you. He's talking we. He's talking life. He's talking death. He's just all over the place, and it's a very difficult passage to go through. But in it, are some really amazing things. I think what we need to remember as we go into this passage after I pray, we are in this portion of the book of, of Romans here where Christ is teaching us what it means to follow him. So I'm going to start off with a little 
explanation here, right? So as we talk through gospel and what the gospel is, right? We start in God, him being the great creator of all things, makes us to know him and abide with him and love with him, but we all take a nosedive straight into the fall, every last one of us, right? We're broken, separated from God. Then God graciously comes and offers us something, reconciliation with him where he would once again be God to us, where he would be, yeah, the authority, but so much more the love of our life. We love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And then all these benefits of like adoption and care and we rule with him and reign with him, all this kind of stuff. This is all part of that potential offer he puts on the table. And there is this different distance between fall and offer that really is called repentance, where I don't want the fall anymore, and I do want what he's proposing. And if you want that, then you need to know how you get that, because you can't do that yourself. Christ came. Perfect God becomes a man, lives perfectly, dies sacrificially, rises in victory. He does the only thing that can be done to give us the proposed offer, right? So if you want the offer, how does it get paid for? We then respond to that in the end, saying, God, I hear what that is. I hear what you say about my natural state, and I agree with it, and I don't want it anymore. I hear what you're proposing that I would have with you, and I take that, I want that. And he goes, and how is this getting paid for? You're like, it's not going to get paid for out of my pockets because I ain't got nothing. You're going you're to pay for that through the work of Jesus, right? We respond in faith to the promise that he's made, right? That's why we baptism after that, to show I'm a person who's listened to what he says, I'm all in to Jesus, right? But that then starts this new life with God. So there is this question, Old Testament, New Testament, how do you figure out what God wants you to do? As an accepted and loved child of God, what does he want me to do? And the people of Rome, the church of Rome, so far away from Jerusalem are sitting over there. They're like, okay, it has something to do with Jesus, but it has something to do with the Old Testament. What do we do? Because these Old Testament people are coming through and saying, Hey, don't move past that Old Testament. And they're confused. So Paul writes this amazing letter called the Romans, a book, Epistle of Romans, and he sends it over to them to say, hey, let me actually sit you down and understand the big game and why those people that are telling you to keep remembering God's instructions for the Old Testament, why they're wrong. And not only that they're wrong, but why they're wrong. And what's the better thing? And what's the cost and effect of living in that old way and the sadness that it brings? So he's unfolding this thing, and there's strong, strong power in it. So today's passage today is particularly the last category, response. What does it mean to go to God and find out what he wants us to do? Where are God's obedience instructions for us as Christians? So let me pray, and then we'll run Romans 7. Father, we thank you for this day, and um, forever and ever and ever we completely need you and forever and ever and ever, we rejoice that you've given us your spirit. And so, Father, please, for your glory and for your honor and for your pleasure and for the pleasure of my brothers and sisters here and the hope of the world, please help us today as we look at this text. Sharpen our hearts and minds, ready us to read it and to understand it. So please guard me from error in this, Father, and please guard all of us as we listen to your word that it would stick, that we would get it, and that it would matter to us, and that we would delight in your truths as much as you do. In Christ's name, amen. So Romans chapter 7, verses 7, 25. You'd be creating a felony crime if you don't have it open in front of you this morning. I'm just telling you, it's going to be the craziest thing you heard if you don't have it in front of you or you can read it, all right? So get it on your phone, get it on your tablet, lean over your neighbor awkwardly, whatever you need to do, get it right in front of you, okay? So here, here as we go into it here, what, here's a, here's a Western question. Here's a Columbus question. What do you do with the Old Testament, Mr. Christian guy, Mr. Christian lady? What do you do with the Old Testament? That's a very, very fair question for anybody to ask you. 
actually a really good question for you to ask yourself. Because three-quarters of the Bible you have in your hand right now is Old Testament. You could count the pages later, but roughly there, okay? So three-quarters of it is Old Testament. What do you do with the Old Testament? That's a fair question for us in our mindsets. And the real question, the real question when you really unfold it is, what do you do with the obedience instructions in the Old Testament? Because as we've gone through this book so far, we've learned a few things. Number one, chapter six, we've learned that Christ, through the work of Jesus, he has freed us from this kind of mysterious, rebellious thing called sin. We are freed from the mastery and the ownership of, slave in our, of sin in our life. Number two, in chapter seven, he says not only are we freed, liberated from sin in our life, but we're liberated from the law. Now, just track with me for a moment here. The word law in the New Testament is a hard one to deal with. It means a lot of different things in the New Testament. Sometimes the word law refers to the whole Old Testament. Okay? Sometimes the word law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament or a section therein where God gives these obedience and instruction codes in the Old Testament. Sometimes law can refer to simply the Ten Commandments. Sometimes law in Romans means the internal law of God written upon our hearts in chapter 2. And in this text, the word law is written 29 times between verse 7 where we start here and verse 7 in, in chapter 8 where the text actually ends today. 29 times. And 19 of those times, sorry, 15 of those times are talking about the law. The law. So whenever you hit the word law in the New Testament as a reader, I just got to figure out, okay, what is he talking about? And be careful about assigning too easy of an answer to it. But most often when God says the law in the New Testament, he is talking about the obedience code that was given to the Old Testament believers. And that could be most easily summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? The big, the big Ten. So that is most often what is being referred to as the law. It is the obedience code of the Old Testament. And in our chapter so far, we've picked up a number of things going through this book. But one of the things we'll find out is that what's our perspective towards the Old, Old Testament and even the law? We love it. We love it all because it came from God. It's really good. We'll see it today. We, we, we take it all except for the obedience instructions because Jesus has given new, updated obedience instructions for us. Okay? So we've picked that up. A-B-I, all but instructions. You, what do we do with the Old Testament? We love it. A-B-I, all but instructions. Okay. So as we've gone through this book here, we've found a, a couple of things so far. This chapter 7 is dedicated to the grand concept. And just kind of keep this in your purview, okay? Chapter 7 is dedicated to rightfully separating New Testament Christians like us from any attachment or obligations to the Old Testament obedience code, the law. So I'm going to go back into using the law or the Mosaic code. Those are the two same words. I'm going to say so many words today that I can't remember which one I'm saying. The law, the Mosaic obedience code, okay? So chapter 7 is rightfully separating New Testament Christians like us from any attachment or obligation to it and not functioning like we are. Because even though legally we're separated from it, still our friend Josiah over there, oh, sorry, Kurt's in town. Our friend over Kurt in town right there, um, he could, as a redeemed Christian with the Spirit of God inside of him, could forget and start functioning like an old covenant person following a non-personal obedience code that was given. Because in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Spirit indwelling like we do now, right? So instruction was given through a written obedience code. 
And you picked it up and you create boundaries and you live in those boundaries, you do those things. So good old Kurt over there in North Carolina or Columbus or wherever he happens to be this week, um, he can forget that and he will forget that because I know Kurt, Kurt knows me, we both forget it. And we shift from this new thing to functioning like the old, even though God has freed us. So there, that's a theme of chapter seven. Here we go. Chapter seven, catching up so far. In chapter six, we're liberated from sin. Verse four in chapter seven, we cannot follow. We learn these things. These are kind of hot topics. These are things Jesus wants you to know. Jesus is sitting you down saying, all right, let me tell you the big game. Verse four, we cannot follow God's instructions for us by the Spirit, unless we quit following the old instructions in the law. You cannot follow the leading of the Spirit while you are following the Old Testament code. That's verse 4. Furthermore, in verse 4, we could not belong to Jesus while we belong to the law. And we found in verse 6, we are liberated from the law because we died out of it through Jesus. So legally, that law is dead and gone and done, and we're separated from it. We died out of it. Like we would die out of a marriage, we died out of it because we died with Christ. Legal separation between it. And then here comes more. Here comes more. The narrative Paul is going to use, and I, I, a couple things i got to throw out here. I threw out the idea of how he's going to use the word law for this chapter here. I'm also going to say he uses a narrative. Paul talks about his experience as a person um, not knowing God. Paul talks about his experience as a person who knows God as an Old Testament, Old Covenant believer because he was that. That's Paul's pathway. Paul didn't know God. Paul became, came to know God, and he was a Jewish follower before following Jesus. So he was living under the law, right? Because the law was the rule book at that time. So he uses this narrative to go through it, and it can be a little bit confusing. And I welcome anybody who has questions afterwards to come and ask me questions in case I'm not clear as we go along. So verse 7, here we go. Our first piece today, our, our title is The Mostly Obsolete Tool of the Law. I'll explain all that. The Mostly Obsolete Tool of the Law. Our first piece is this, the law uncovered sin. Verse 7, what shall we say then? In this, in this chapter up till then, the, the law has just kind of taken a whooping at the hands of Paul. Paul said you died to it. And in verse 7 he goes, So what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I, Paul, would not have known sin. For I would, have, um, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Ten commandments. Which is not mentally, was coveting, mentally obsessing or manipulating over what you desire. That's coveting, right? Mentally obsessing or manipulating over what you desire. So he says, by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. But I would, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. So first piece is this, the law uncovered sin. It was a good thing. It was kind of like hosing off the soul. Okay, that's what, the, that's what the old covenant law was for. It's like hosing off the soul and you're going to see the stuff underneath there. It's like a grid. You're like, ah, this thing's great. And then God lays the grid over it. Like everything's straight. Puts the grid over it. You're like, oh, everything's not straight. Everything's not in line. Uh, second piece. The law, uh, the, the uncovered sin killed us. The uncovered sin killed us. By us, this is Paul talking to those under it. So I believe, okay, I believe that the words lived and died here in this upcoming portion is Paul's perception of himself. Okay, this is Paul's 
old covenant perception of himself, perceived himself to be right and alive, and then rightly perceived himself as spiritually dead. Verse, verse 8. But then, uh, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. This is Paul talking. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I didn't know what it was to covet. Law came in and said, don't covet. And he goes, man. But once the, the law came in and said, don't covet, sin rose up, seized an opportunity the commandment, and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. It's there. Romans 1, same guy just wrote Romans 1. It's there. Sin is there. But it's not really understood at all for what it really is. It's recognized in a lot of our traits that we have worldwide. But until God's instruction came, it really wasn't seen and just laid kind of dead there. Verse 9, he goes, And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So Paul, like all people, was spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, he wrote that too. Paul, like all people, were spiritually dead, but before encountering the, law, the old covenant law, he went blissfully along, unaware of sin, and feeling fine about himself. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life, the perfect and blessed way to live, proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it deceived me, because remember that's what sin does. It's not always detectable, it deceives. Sin deceived me, and through it, it killed me. It ruined any sense of notion of me being good. It showed me I was spiritually dead. So Paul is giving firsthand testimony to what happens when you are a person who didn't know God, but in, in that time you encountered the law. Once that good law hit you, it, 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 uh, the party was over, right? The, the notions of you being a good boy, good girl, the law just broke that to pieces because you couldn't handle, you couldn't handle it. Our third piece is, the law is God's good gift. The law is God's good gift. Verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The old covenant law is actually stellar. We admire and love it. So, even though Christ separated us from the law, we died out from the law, that law was not a bad thing. It did not come from Moses. It did not come from men, and it was not unfortunate. It was a very, very good gift of God himself, beautiful in its creation, perfect in its design, every last bit of it, it was good. How do I know that? Well, it says these words. These are pretty big words. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So as we think back as New Covenant Christians back on the Old Testament, we don't spit on the Old Testament. We don't ignore the Old Testament. We don't, like, speak down about the law because the law was really good. It is really good because there's still a portion of it that's still alive. We'll get to that in a second. It's, it's a good thing. It, it's a good thing that came from God. We just happen to have a much better thing now. So the third piece is the law is God's good gift. So Christian, you may be a very young Christian and a very new Christian trying to think this through. Some of these things might be a little bit high, high shelved for you right now. You're like, what the heck do I do with this? God's explaining how things work. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't come to us and just throw us a, few, a pile of some principles to live off for the rest of our life. He doesn't lead us by principled living. He doesn't toss us a few bullet points. He is this majestic king with all of this history and all of this plan and all these ways, and he unfolds this stuff all through the New Testament. And he wants us to know what he's doing, why he's doing, how he's doing it, how we connect into it, our place in it, because there is 
help to us in it. There's joy in it to actually know how all this works together. So our pieces so far, number one, the law uncovers sin. Number two, uncovered sin killed us. The law didn't. Number three, the law is God's good gift. Fourth, um, sin has to be identified and despised. Sin has to be identified and despised. Verse 13, but did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So, so, so track this. He's saying for us as people, it is really, really good to know how sinful our sin is. It's really, really good. And the, in the Old Testament, the law was his gracious gift to really make them see how broken they were. Other places in the scripture, he said he adds the law so that sin might increase. It's this. So we can actually know how jacked up we actually are. And so, my friends, I would tell you that there is great, great help in it. The, the Old Testament... This, when God brought that written code on, it would agitate and stir up sin. It, like, it, like it would box an animal in the corner. Uh, men's retreat. Last night, I was sitting on the top of this water slide area studying my notes all by myself. Sun's going down really beautiful. And I look out the corner of my eye, and here's a raccoon coming across me at the lawn, right? And, um, and he's, he's all about from me here to Kale. And um, raccoons are cute at a distance. Okay, so if you're like a city person, just know this. The raccoon is the American monkey. It's one of the most formidable animals in nature. Um, wicked smart. Amazing. So I see Mr. Raccoon coming across the lawn at me. He doesn't see me. And he gets about to kill his leg there. I'm like, hey! Not a step closer. And uh, he looks up at me, and then he turns around, and, and this, is, this is the fall. Everyone's been eating all summer, and so he runs off, and all the animals are fat. So when you get a little small, fat animal, they do this jiggly run all the way back to the forest. And they're not moving that fast, but it's just the jiggle swaying is really great. And uh, the reason is, the reason is, I have a fair respect for raccoons. I have a history with them. And um, uh, they look cute until you put them in a corner. And then it's game on, and your game better be on too, because here they come. And they're smart. They're a foe. Right? And so um, I, don't want, I don't want to put the raccoon in an awkward situation near me. Go, hey, Mr. Raccoon, because now he's cornered. I will get ravaged. He will die. So, um, so I see him from a distance. I respect it and say, hey, Mr. Raccoon, not a foot. Right? So the law, in a similar way, it, it, it corners the animal of sin in our lives. The code came in and it cornered. Whenever the code arrives, it comes in and it corners the animal of sin in your life and it would rise it up in power. Right? And he's telling us that because we can still live like that. We can live suffering under the undue influence of sin when we live by simple code living, simple principled living, simple, simple like proverbial living of like mindlessness. I just remember the big laws of God and I go through my life as long as I'm not violating the big laws of God. If you live that way, you will corner the animal of sin in your life because sin is in you, Christian, New Testament person. Old Testament person, New Testament person, when they become a person who's a believer in God and they have new life, that sin nature is still in them. Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament, they were really in a pickle because when they would go to get God's instructions, which was the written code of law, perfect, good, given by God to those people at the time, when they would go to grapple with the law and live it, the presence of the law would corner the animal of the sin nature and rise up, make it stirred up to rise up in power. And what he's telling us, in the New Testament, we don't have to live like that. 
But if you don't walk in the Spirit, more on that next week, and choose to walk as a person who knows God by just simply living by a code and not looking to the Spirit of God, you will encounter the cornered animal of your sin nature will rise up. A, a personless, non-spirit-led way of living will corner that animal and fester it up, and you will taste sin or rise up with power that you don't need to. We've got enough problems. <laughs> We've got enough temptation. But if we live in that way, it will rise it up, corner it. So the law agitated the killer of sin into revealing itself in this passage here. It was really good, because it's really good to just see how bad our sin is. And, and we as Christians, we don't need the law to discover that anymore. We have the New Testament, right? So I have friends in my life. Some of you guys are here. We're talking about this currently in conversations. I think that you might be hurt because you don't know the power of sin in your life. You're like, oh, I did this or that. I was lustful. I slept with this person. I was angry. I did that. But you still aren't really getting a grasp on how deep it goes in your soul. Paul said it was a gracious thing of God to give us the law as the old covenant people because it showed us the sin, right? But brothers and sisters, you can't walk strongly with Jesus unless you know what he has saved you away from and the sin nature that still lies within you. So if you're bopping along, feeling good about yourself, not thinking you have a problem, man, dude, it's just eating you alive and you don't know it. So the understanding, the exposing of sin in our lives and the understanding of it is really a good and gracious thing. And for us as Christians, you can get that by reading the New Testament and listening to what's actually said. You once were aliens and enemies. And these things he's saying here, like your sin nature is so powerful then unless the Spirit of God is actively overwhelming it, it will eat you alive and you will suffer dead living like we were dead living in the Old Testament. Like, there's things you can learn. You don't have to, you don't have to learn this by experience, by living mindless living, code living before the Lord. So we as Christians don't need it. But there is why our title says the mostly obsolete tool of the law. There actually is still a use for the obedience instructions of the law. But it's not for you, believer in Jesus. It's for the unbeliever. In 1 Timothy verses 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 8 to 11, hear these words. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient and for the ungodly and sinners and for the unholy and profane and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, and for murderers, and for the sexually immoral, and men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. The law, the tool of the law, the code, is still a valid tool to help the unbeliever realize they're out of whack. It's still a rule. It's still there. That's why it's not bad. For you, I'm going to give you an example. You have a friend, and you're trying to help them understand their brokenness. You share with them the story of the gospel, how we are separated from God and alienated from them, but they still don't understand that it's them. You could, you could go back to Exodus and pull out the Ten Commandments. You can do it. Pull out the Ten Commandments and say, how, hey, how do, all right, let's put, this, let's put this grid on you. Ting! Right? Have you put any other guys before me? Uh, yeah, I probably have. Um, do you falsely say a Christian? Maybe. Um, have you been disobedient and dishonoring your parents? Yeah, probably. Have you lied? Yep. Have you stolen? Yep. Have you committed adultery in your heart? Yep, 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 yep. Looks like you're down. Looks like you're down. That, that is the purpose of the law. The only existing purpose of the instruction code of the Mosaic code 
can be used when helpful to help an unbeliever come to realize that they really are broken and expose their need. But when that friend, that awesome lady that you're loving, you're helping her see the brokenness, and she looks to see Jesus, she says, yes, I'm broken, but I want a Savior, and she puts her faith in him, don't take her back to that code again. Teach her the glories of the New Testament. Take her back to the New Testament and let her understand the gracious and wonderful leading and teaching of Jesus in the New Testament. You know what they're going to find? They're going to find that Jesus says don't commit adultery in the New Testament. And they're going to find that Jesus says don't steal in the New Testament and don't covet in the New Testament and don't take their wife in the New Testament and don't have gods before me in the New Testament. They're going to find all this stuff there, but teach them to feed off of the active teachings of the Spirit in the New Testament and then the specific leadings of the Spirit who is in them. They're going to read because you're not taking them back to Exodus or Leviticus you're not going back there. You're teaching them the New Testament. They're going to read Christ say, a new commandment giving to love one another as I've loved you. And how he describes that love. But then in the moment, we were talking about this men's retreat. Um, Nathaniel was giving us a great talk on this. In the moment, God, how do you want me to love Aaron? How do you, to what degree? What? I'm, so for me, just small examples were men's retreat. I can't tell anyone else examples because I'm not in their head. There's a number of times I would go to a meal and I'm like, all right, Lord, I'm here. Thank you for your love. And how do you want me to love? Who do you want me to hang out with? Who do you want me to sit with? At uh, one moment in time, I saw a brother walking by, kind of wanted to talk to him. But I was like, all right, Lord, um, leave me by your spirit. Should I just let him walk? Should I say something? And I felt it good at that time to say, hey, let's talk a little bit later. And we talked a little bit later. Right? We're, just, we're just checking in with the leading of the spirit. If I had within me the overwhelming urge to bash his face in with a stick, I know that's not the leading of the Spirit because the Spirit has already written that in the New Testament. So the Spirit has put the ground rules, but the specific applications of love, he will lead in the moment. So there is a use for the law. It is for the unbeliever now for exposing for sin, but the moment they put their faith in Jesus, take that lens off of them. That lens is not for them anymore. Bring them to the teaching of the New Testament and the leading of the Spirit. Our next point is this. Our flesh was too weak for the law. Verses 14 20. So then, uh, why didn't the gospel, the exposing of the law, work for Paul? Well, here's the problem. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, Paul, Old Testament, Old Covenant believer, am of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. Now, notice this. He says I'm sold under sin, but we know. This is why, this is why we know he's talking about his old life, because he just told us in the last chapter he died to sin. Okay, so, so this is a flashback. I'm sold under sin. Um, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. What Paul's taking us into is, an, is a picture of old covenant believing living. You want to follow God. You get the code, these written codes. Boom, you get it. And when you try to dive, live through the code, you get this disaster that happens. Your heart wants to follow the code, but everything in you is fighting against it in a way that was terrible, horrible. And he's saying, listen, I've tried this. You don't want to go back to this. For I do not understand my own actions, for, the, for I do not want, for what I do not want, sorry, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do, don't want, I agree with the law, that it is good because the law is, the, is right on. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. I know of nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's, that's the law exposing it, right? That's him going the exceeding sinfulness in my heart. That's what we've discovered likewise in the New Testament. Like, I brought nothing to Jesus. But the truth be told, after I come to know Jesus, I still don't have anything in my flesh. Christ is all. Christ is all. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So Paul is not absconding from personal responsibility, but he's bringing up the desperateness of the actual situation that I have sin, nature, actively dwelling within me that I can't kill. So our sin nature remains. It's powerful. It deceives. It creates strong pulses. This was true under the law, and it's also true under the new covenant. And even in the new covenant, God does not remove the sin nature from us, but rather provides greater power. But the nature urges and temptation are still there. So you still have a sin nature. So Aaron Stenoff, I'll leave. Kurt, I'll come back and use you one more time because you're not here that often. Okay. Um, by the way, do you guys know, if you guys don't know Kurt, the guy in the green shirt back there, stunningly handsome, right in front of Claire. So Kurt's been a part of our church for years. So since our church turns over, I just need to point him out because you may not have met him, but he's been a part of our church for years. Gifted surgeon, heart for Jesus, seeking God's direction for where he would serve in missions in the world as a missionary surgeon and a, a great brother. But he pops in and out of our body life all the time. Um, and so we love him. So thanks for being here. And Kurt has a history in our body of being the man who's most fallen asleep in all of my sermons, um, which I count as an honor. So for instance, um, so for instance uh, Nathaniel Foreman, like yesterday he left men's free early got his scrubs on so he could go, like, heal people at the hospital, right? So he worked all through the night, and it'd be totally justified for that man over there to be passed out in bed sleeping. But you know what he's done? He got good-looking again, and he came, and sitting here in a service when he could be not because he's seeking the face of the Lord. He's coming to bless you guys and be blessed. And so I've always counted, honestly, people sleeping in my sermons is one of the highest compliments because they could easily have been in bed, but they're fighting through to be here. So Kurt... Hats off to you, brother. I love you. <laughs> it's good to have you. <clears throat> so, in our temptations, in our flesh, we still have these temptations, these flesh that, that rises within us. And it will be gone someday when God takes you to glory. But until then, you have this really, really, really true issue within you. And it will be worse if you try to follow the Lord in a way that God's not telling you that he leads you. Our last piece of our text today is this, verse 21. <clears throat> the inferior law brought about soul trauma. Verse 21. Sorry, I have to hydrate. I'm kind of talking fast today. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law, I say a law of nature, that when I, an old covenant believer, want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. So this is all... It's never, Old Testament, New Testament Christian living has never been do the right thing. It has never, ever been do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Old Testament believers would get busted by God when they came and did the right looking thing for the wrong reason. So even in the Old Testament, your heart has to be in it, right? So Old Covenant believer, my heart, uh, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
goes, I've got two things going on inside of me. True desire for God and a sin nature driven to dominant passion and agitated by that written code law of God. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The law, at the end of the law, left you gasping for air. Like the law was not like peaceful days. It was a good gift, but it made everyone who's trying to do it say, but we need more. We need more. And the more's name was Jesus, verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And it really bothered old covenant believers. It really bothered them, this dual reality that they were fighting with. But here comes the help of living. Cross over the chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's a new sheriff in town. Inside you, his name is the Spirit of Christ, and he is much stronger than that sin nature that used to bully you around in the Mosaic Code days of following. Um, Jesus does deliver us from this body of death, right? And, and this, is the, this is the hope in the passages. The hope in the passages, you will fight, fight temptation as a believer. But this passage here is saying it doesn't have to go like you went before. And you don't have to voluntarily subjugate yourself to it. Because if you, as a new covenant believer, try to follow God by ignoring the Spirit and picking up a cold Old Testament code of do this, do that, Number one, that does not please God. Number two, you're not bearing fruit for him. And number three, you're setting yourself up for a firestorm of sin and temptation in your life because it will corner the animal again. But it's not the case of the Spirit. Now the Spirit will lead us. He will lead us away from a sin, absolutely. But as we are led by the Spirit, we will face less agitation of our flesh than our old covenant counterparts did. It's a new day. It's a new day of hope because the Spirit of, God, the, Spirit of the Lord has set us free from the law of sin and death. If you think back to chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, you hear these words. <clears throat> For if we, have been just, if we have been unified with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. Old covenant believers were conquered conquered by sin as they would try to follow. It's like as the law of God came and let's say it squishes the toothpaste, there would be righteous obedience coming out of them and sin coming out of them simultaneously by design. In the New Testament, when you squish that toothpaste, it's something different. When the, when the Spirit of God leads us, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's a new reality for us getting to walk in the Spirit. So two helps. While you're walking in the Spirit, you won't be sinning and you won't be and you will be stripping sin of the opportunity to gain a foothold to deeply tempt you. And number two, which is amazing help, I've, and I've known that for a long time. I've read Galatians 5, 16 a long time, and I memorized it a long time. Maybe the same time I memorized Romans 12, 12, for different reasons. Um, but I was trying to follow the Lord. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. At first, when I saw that, I was like, sweet. Solution to lust in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. I like this. So I memorized it for the solution to the battle I was in. Later on, I go, oh, um, it's, it's like, it's like um, I, the, the good thing is walking in the Spirit, right? Not fulfilling the list of flesh. That's like a side benefit. At first, I was excited about the side benefit. But then all of a sudden, I, oh, really, I can walk in the Spirit. So I discovered it a long time ago. But now this passage actually tells you how it actually works. That as you're walking in the Spirit, um, it strips the flesh of the voice in your life. 
it doesn't stir it up. It strips it down. And so as you're looking to the Spirit and saying, God, how do you want me to love that person? You're going to go home today. You're going to take your little nap. You're going to do whatever. And then these opportunities again and again to look to the Spirit and say, what do you want me to do? What would, Jesus, what would you want me to do? Do you, you want me to take a nap? You want me to rest? You want me to do something loving for my spouse? You want me to call somebody up? Is there anyone you want me to call up or pray? Is anybody you want me to take out a frappuccino or coffee or something like that? What do you want me to do? You want me to take a walk? Shall I play some golf? Go fishing? Shall I do whatever you do? Like, what, what do you want me to do? And again and again and again, go through your day checking in with the Spirit of God. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? It strips sin of its opportunity. Number two, you as a Christian will still encounter temptation. You will still encounter temptation, and God has made some very specific promises for you. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 13. And I would re- we will memorize this as a church. It's coming. So you can beat us to the punch, but this one's coming, okay? The classic, classic text is so helpful in this. He says, therefore, let any who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, Christian, that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And this is to Christians, not to non-believers. So if you're watching this online or you're sitting here today and, you're, and you haven't come to the Lord and say, God, I don't want myself anymore. I want you. And I rest in the work of Jesus. I give myself to you. If you haven't done that, this could be yours. It's not your promise. Actually, you'll be dominated by sin. And you can't do anything about it until Jesus does. Okay? So you could, in this moment, say, Jesus, do something about it. Free me. Give me life. But until then, this promise is for his kids. So if you're here, you put your faith in Jesus, you're alive and you know him, and the Spirit of God is in you, and he is if you're a Christian, because if he isn't, you aren't a Christian, right? Because all Christians have the Spirit of God in them. This is his promise. It's, it's very particular and very powerful. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The risen king of heaven says every single time that you, as a Christian, encounter temptation, you will never be forced to feel that temptation and carry on to sin. Like Jesus, Jesus encountered all the temptations we'd encounter, yet he did without sin. And God says, I promise to give you every single time with every single temptation an escape out of it. There will be a way out of it. The leading way out of it is the spirit that is in you. The word of the spirit that you're memorizing. That's why we're memorizing scripture, to put in our minds and fuel these things. So God's promise to you, Christian, is when you do encounter temptation, he will always, always custom provide a way out of it. You will never find a temptation, not one time in your Christian life, where you cannot escape. He is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he promises, the one who is with you and never leaves you or forsake you, promises that he will extend a ladder out of that pit every single time. So as we finish this passage, I think the passage is amazing, number one, because it's very, very complex as we went through it. The argument is really hard to track. But the macro arguments of this passage are amazing. There is amazing freedom for us as Christians to not do this upside-down living where we say, God, I want to know you through the work of Jesus. And then I want to basically ignore you all my days. I just want to do my due diligence. Show me the box, the rules, and I'm going to try to live in those rules. And then I am just a complete feral animal outside of that. I can do whatever I want inside the box. Um, That's not the life he's invited us to. He's offered, offered a marriage to us where we would know him and love him and walk with him. We would abide with him and him and us. 
we'd be unified with him and him and us. We would be able to enjoy the presence of the spirit of the risen Christ who is in you, who will lead you and guide you. But you do have to keep looking to him and then following him. How do you know it's him? You read his words, first of all, to make sure. So when you have these errant thoughts of, that are lies, errant thoughts that are sin, you can identify them like, oh, that's my sin nature. That's my gut. That's not the Spirit of God telling me to do that sin. So we spend time in God's Word, but we live this new life in unity with Jesus, being led by Him in the Word of the Spirit in the New Testament and in the specific application by the Spirit as we walk with Him. And in that, there's a whole new level of life where you're not facing as much temptation as you probably are right now because you're trying to code live. There's joy in it in walking in the power of the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, chew it over. If you have more questions for me, think that I'm off the wall by interpretation of this chapter, hey, I'll take it. We'll talk about it. Um, I just would encourage you, in a, a chapter like this that has so many details, don't get lost in the weeds so much and forget the big picture. The big picture is through Christ, we died to the law, and it's a really good thing. And now the Spirit is here, and He will lead us. And it is good and life-giving and less frustrating and less tempting when we walk in the Spirit. Because when you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let's pray. So, Father, please, at the end of all that, please lead us by your Spirit. Um, give us the joys of walking in the Spirit. Um, may we notice that as we look to the Spirit, as we talk to you, not try to scream to you or some distant mountain, but talk to you, the one who is in us. May we notice abundant fruit come out of us, like joy and peace and kindness, tenderness, long-suffering. Um, please, fruit wonderfully in our eyes. Lord, let us see it, and let us see how good it is to reference you and to follow you and to seek you as spirit-indwelled people, that we would then be the spirit-led people. So we love you. And we thank you for your help. We thank you for your instruction. We thank you for sitting us down and showing us how it works. And now, Father, please continue to stir in our hearts to cause us to believe and to dive deeply into you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.